God, it is your word. It's holy, it's good, it's right, and we're thankful for it. And uh, surely, Lord, we can take eight or nine minutes out of our busy lives uh, to hear the reading of your word, if not more. And so, God, I pray that as we uh, have now read Daniel chapter 2, and now as we talk about it, that we might understand it rightly for our lives, and that, Lord, we might apply it in a diligent and high-integrity way. And so, God, bless this time in your word, I pray, in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. So, you got to marvel at how human beings are people who love to predict the future. Have you ever noticed that? We just love to predict the future. Last week's Super Bowl game was a great example of this. You know, every sportscaster I listened to had a prediction on who was going to win the Super Bowl. Most of them were wrong. So much for predictions, right? Elections are this way. Uh, we're going to have some elections coming up this November, and I find that the people are already, the experts are already trying to talk about who's going to come out on top and who's not. People are already predicting what's going to happen this November. The economy is always good for a prediction or two, whether it be the Dow, the NASDAQ, quarterly earnings, job losses, GDP, retail sales. I mean, people are constantly trying to guess where our economy is going to go. Or how about a juicy trial when it hits our, our country? We haven't had one since OJ, but if you remember that, everybody was trying to predict the outcome of that trial, and I find that human beings do that. And obviously, the greatest example of what you and I try to predict is the weather. It's the weather. I, I mean, you wouldn't be a good American if you didn't try to guess where the weather was going, right? I mean, we overdose on the weather in this country. We have weather channels, we have weather radio stations, we have weather websites, we have weather magazines. You can get, make a phone call to hear the weather, you can read a newspaper, you can Google it. I'm told you can now even tweet it. I mean, we are just consumed with wanting to know what's going to happen with the rain and the clouds and the sun. I got a hint for you. It's easy to interpret the weather here in Arizona. Have you ever found that out? I mean, I moved here, it was like, I, I mean, I haven't met any weather casters yet. One of my best friends in Cleveland is a weathercaster, and I've told a man, come to Arizona, you'd have it made. I'm like, this is just like, it's a great town for a great state for predicting the weather, especially here in Phoenix. Think about it, folks. Human beings have an uncanny ability to predict. We want to know what's coming. We want to lasso the future and somehow capture it and even control it. So whether it be a sports game or an election or the economy or something going on in our culture or even the movement of rainstorms, we want to know what's coming down the pike. We want to know what's coming next. In short, we are people very interested in the future. And so you're going to like today. I want to talk to you about God and the future. Because you see, folks, God is interested in the future just like us. In fact, as we're going to see in a minute, he actually has more of a vested interest in the future than we do, more ownership of it than you and I ever could. So we read a passage from Daniel chapter 2. It was a passage written about five to 600 years before Christ. It's a true historical account of something that happened to the prophet Daniel while, some of, while he and some of his fellow Jews were exiled in Babylon, which is where modern-day Iraq is now, at the end, of the, or the end of the 6th century B.C. You might remember that Nebuchadnezzar is the reigning king at this time. He's a rather insecure, power-hungry leader who hasn't quite cemented his spiritual worldview yet, 
which is a nice way of saying that he was into New Age mysticism type stuff, obviously was not Jewish, had a very syncretistic pagan outlook on spiritual things. And Daniel, who's about 15 to 16 years old at this time, is serving in Nebuchadnezzar's court, giving him wisdom and advising him on spiritual and cultural matters because God had given this teenager incredible wisdom, as we saw in chapter 1, well beyond his years. And as you remember from the story being read earlier from chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a disturbing dream that he didn't understand. It scared him. In fact, it scared him so much that it says in verse 1 of chapter 2, and I quote, that his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Some of us can relate to this. Some of us have had nightmares as well that were so terrifying that we couldn't sleep. We didn't want to get back to sleep. That was Nebuchadnezzar. So he calls his most trusted advisors, the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers. I mean, this guy was messed up spiritually. And he commands them to tell him the content of the dream as well as interpret it or they're going to be killed and their houses turned into garbage dumps. And as we know from reading the story earlier, Nebuchadnezzar's most trusted advisors tell him that nobody can do such a thing. No one could tell him both the content of the dream and interpret it because they were not inside his head when he dreamed it. And they said to him, why don't you tell us what the dream is and we'll tell you its meaning. But Nebuchadnezzar's not an idiot. He's mean, selfish, and prideful maybe, but certainly not uh, dumb. And he says, I know what you guys are trying to do. You're trying to trick me here. And so, no, if you do not tell me both the content of the dream and what it means, you're going to die and you're going to be permanently foreclosed on your house. And this is where Daniel comes in. Young, godly, 900 miles away from all he knows and loves, Daniel. And it is at this place in the story, folks, in the interaction between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar over this dream that we learn three really important things about God and the future. And so if you're a note-taker, pull out your outline right now. I'm going to let you fill in the blanks. If you're not, just track along with me as I walk you through this, passage, this historical narrative here and share with you a few, three things that tell us about the future. Here's the first one, and that is that God knows the future. He created it and controls it. This is a starting point, but really important to grasp onto. God knows the future. Why? Because he created it and he controls it. And so as the story progresses, we find Daniel at his house asking his three fellow teenagers to pray that God might help him know the content and the meaning of this dream. And as we know, God does reveal this to Daniel, and it's all about the future and what is to come. We're going to look more closely at that in just a minute here. But as Daniel is thanking God for making this dream and its content known to him, he says something very interesting about God. Look at verse 21a of Daniel chapter 2. He says, and I quote, He, God, changed, changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Interesting. God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. But what most Bible experts agree on here is that this is obviously referring to God's sovereignty. The fact that he is in control and governs all that he has made and all that's going to occur. 
they all agree that this is a combination of both what we call God's omniscience, the fact that he knows all, even all that is to come, as well as his omnipotence, the fact that he is all-powerful, creating and controlling all that he has made, including time and space, so it even includes the future. So listen now, Stephen Miller, a well-respected scholar on the book of Daniel, puts it. Look up here on the screen. He says, the first clause refers to the fact that God governs the different eras and events of human history and is able to change them at will. In the second clause, it is explained that human history is changed by Yahweh as he sets up kings and deposes them. Folks, this is what I call foreknowledge based on sovereignty. That's what's happening here. It's foreknowledge based on sovereignty. It's the fact that God is 100% unequivocally sovereign over all that he has made. He made this world, he made time and space, so of course he controls it. But then he's also aware of everything that's going to happen because of the fact that he does control it. He both made and ordained all of creation, so he certainly knows all about it. The fact that he's sovereign and that he knows all is core in what it means to be God. And though there are indeed philosophical mysteries and even quandaries associated with this view of God, when you really think about it, it only makes sense that an all-powerful creator of something would maintain complete control of what he or she has made and certainly have ultimate knowledge about, he or she, about what he or she has made. And so if God is God and has created and made this world, including time and space, then of course he knows the future, which is part of time and space to come. It just makes sense. Let me give you an example from everyday life that might help this. What I want to show you is that all of us have a worldview that says that if somebody makes something, then they tend to know all about that which they have made. And my argument is simply that if God has created time and space, then certainly he knows all that there is about time and space. Now, here's a story. My brother Pete is about one year younger than me. And he's a wonderful, godly guy who lives with his wife Lori and their three kids in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And Pete is really smart. I'm not just saying that because he's my brother. He is. I tell him quite often that I got the looks and he got the brains. <laughs> Peter has an earned master's degree in computer engineering from the University of Colorado in Boulder. And he works for a boutique software design firm that's done really well over the years and is doing really well even during this recession. And a few years back, when I was having problems with my computer, I called up Pete and he fixed it just like that. And I asked him a question I never asked him before at that time, just out of curiosity. I said, Pete, do you know how the inside of my computer works? He said, yes, of course. And I said, everything? Like from how the motherboard is laid out, to how the hard drive works, to how the memory is mapped, even to how the inside of the CPU is wired and worked? And he said, yes. And he said, don't forget, Jamie. He said, I got into this whole field back in the early 1980s when I was in high school by initially building my own computer. And then he said, because you see, when you build something, you usually know all about it. And then I remembered. Way back in 1980, Pete got one of these build-it-yourself computer kits for Christmas. For you computer geeks, it was a Timex Sinclair 1000 with 2K of memory. Remember those days? And we thought 2K was a lot back then. And as I was skiing the slopes that Christmas break, my brother, the geek, was building this computer and learning how it all worked. 
then add a master's degree in computer engineering and years of tracking every advance in computer technology, and certainly you got a guy who knows how a computer works. And so here's my point, is that you could probably tell me a similar story of either yourself or a friend or a family member that you know who knows everything about something whether it be a computer or an automobile or how the banking system works or how the internal plumbing of your house works. And the reason that they know it is because they've been involved in making it. They've been involved in the creation of it. And we all know that if you're involved in creating and controlling something, then certainly you have knowledge of it. It's the edge that the creator has on what he or she creates. So... Multiply this by about a million fold and then include the future and you got God. That's what he has simply said. That I know all that there is to know. Foreknowledge is mine because I'm the maker of time and space. I'm the maker of all that there is and is going to be. And just like a car maker knows about cars and a computer maker knows about computers, the maker of time and space who is sovereign over all that he has made knows all about it. It both philosophically and theologically makes sense. And it's the first thing, folks, that Daniel 2 teaches us about God and his relationship to the future. We must see this. He knows all about it because he made it and controls it. But it doesn't stop there. We're actually just getting going. So notice the second thing that Daniel in his interactions with Nebuchadnezzar teaches us here, and that is that at times then, God reveals the future to us. Now we're getting somewhere. So God doesn't just stop at saying that he knows the future, but then he also goes on to reveal to you and me some glimpses of the future. And now we're getting to the heart of what Daniel 2 is trying to say to us. Check this out. As Daniel learns about Nebuchadnezzar's dream and its meaning from God himself, there is a phrase that is used over and over again in various forms, kind of like a scratch CD, keeps repeating itself, and it's the phrase, the revealer of mysteries. Interesting. He'll close at Daniel 2, and he'll say quite often, the revealer of mysteries. Let me show you. Look at verses 19, 22, 28, 30, and 47. I'm going to put it up here on the screen. When Daniel was first seeking God for wisdom concerning Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it says in verse 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. The mystery was revealed. And then as Daniel goes down to thank God for doing this in verse 22, it was the passage we read together, he says, He, God, reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. Then when Daniel is telling Nebuchadnezzar that he knows the dream and its meaning, he tells it to him this way. Look in verses 28 and 30. He says, But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. This mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom I have had more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. And then finally, verse 47, when Nebuchadnezzar is all excited about this dream being made known to him and its meaning, he says, truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. And here it is again, a revealer of mysteries. I like this phrase, a revealer of mysteries used no less than five times in this short chapter here, or this long chapter here, to describe God and the future. It's fascinating. That word mystery here is the Aramaic word raz or raz. 
And it literally means something that is unknown, like the future. It's translated in the Greek version of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint, with the Greek word mysterion, where we get our English word mystery from. That famous version of the Bible, the King James Version, translates this word secret. You get the idea. It's simply referring to something that you and I don't know, and in this context, it's obviously referring to the future and the fact that God is in the habit of revealing to us every now and then things about the future. And though we're going to get to what this particular future is in just a minute here, let's at least note at this point that God in the Bible makes a regular habit of pulling a Daniel 2 on us and revealing to us what is going to happen as time goes by. That's really important that we understand God this way. That he just doesn't know the future, but in this book, he's actually gone to great lengths to tell us certain things about the future. We'll see why in just a minute. But right in the Old Testament, you've got hundreds of predictions of the future. Then the New Testament, you have Jesus talking to us about the future. And then the very last book of the Bible, you guys missed that one, the book of Revelation, which is all about the future. God has gone to great lengths to share with you and I some things about the future. We call this apocalyptic literature. It's a study of eschatology, a study of the end times, and it's all over the Bible. And I know how some of you think. You're thinking, well, Jamie, you ever tried reading that stuff like it's really hard to understand? That's true. Much of the language is symbolic, and it's definitely open for some interpretation and even debate. But it's nevertheless very useful information as God gives us a peek into this world and time not yet to come. And as a quick side note, I need to point out before I move on very clearly that the final biblical book written, the Revelation, also tells us that this revealing is now complete. In other words, we don't need to add from it or take away from it. We don't need to try to seek any more information from mediums and astrologers and the New Age type of stuff because it's now done. What God wants you and I to know about the future was finished with the book of Revelation. In fact, God feels so strongly about this, he's actually said it to us in very candid terms. Look up here on the screen. Look at how the book of Revelation ends. It says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Whoa. God is pretty serious about you and I not adding to this and seeking more understanding of the future. He said you already have what you need. And believe me, folks, as somebody who's been studying this for years, we have our hands full in trying to make sense of and understand what God has already revealed in the Bible, as we're going to see this next summer and fall. This next summer and fall, I'm going to finish up the book of Daniel. We're doing chapters 1 through 6 now. We're going to take a short break, and then I'm going to do chapters 7 through 12, which is all about the future. And I've called the series Future 401, because it's like really hard stuff to understand. And the reason I'm taking a break is I need more time in my research to try to understand it. And so some of you will already be back up north where we're sweltering in the heat here this summer. And so for you snowbirds, we now call you seasonal visitors. For you seasonal visitors, you're going to want to get onto the website and check out this summer and fall what we have to say as we look at Daniel 7 through 12. It's good stuff. And so God not only knows the future, but at times, please see, he even reveals it to us, just as he did 
with Daniel here in Nebuchadnezzar. And so let's go back to our story. What does this dream mean? And how does it affect the future? And though we don't have time to parse out all the details of this dream and its content this morning, I want to give you a synopsis of it, complete with Daniel's interpretation and what Bible experts generally agree on. So you might remember from the story being read earlier that this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had was about a great image or a large statue, as the NIV says. Give me a click here, guys. Uh, this might be a, a, a rendering of it. Paul Wagner at the seminary gave me this picture here that he uses in his teaching on Daniel chapter 2. And uh, in this large image, the head was made of gold, the chest, was of arms and, chest and arms were of silver, the belly and thighs were of bronze, the legs of iron, and the feet of iron mixed in clay. And it was a large, powerful, even terrifying image or statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. And then as the dream went on, you might remember that a very large stone, this is key, not cut by human hands, a very large stone struck this statue on its feet, pulverizing the whole thing to such a degree that it blew away like chaff on the threshing floor. And this large stone then became a great mountain and filled the entire earth. This is Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and it was terrifying and disturbing to him. And so here is Daniel's interpretation given to him by God. Look up here on the screen. Give me another click here, guys. Daniel said after this dream is representing four kingdoms and then a fifth divine kingdom. The four kingdoms included the current one under Nebuchadnezzar. That was the first kingdom. It's the kingdom of Babylon. Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar, you, O king, are the head of made of gold. We know that Babylon ruled from 605 B.C. to about 539 B.C., 66 years during Daniel's life, and Nebuchadnezzar was the king. Good so far. Then Daniel said another kingdom is going to come, an inferior kingdom after him that will reign. And sure enough, the Medo-Persian kingdom came after Nebuchadnezzar, in which Cyrus the Great was the king. That kingdom lasted through various kings 208 years to 331 B.C., and it was definitely inferior in the sense of moral quality. Not that Nebuchadnezzar was a poster child for morality, mind you, but Cyrus was even worse. Then Daniel said a third kingdom is going to come, and sure enough, after that Medo-Persian empire, many of you remember Alexander the Great, he defeated the Persian empire, and the whole Greek era was brought in. And for 185 years, from 331 to 146 B.C., we have the Greeks. And then Daniel said a fourth kingdom will come, a very strong kingdom, a kingdom made of iron. And sure enough, with the defeat of Carthage, the Roman kingdom was ushered in in 146 B.C. And for the next 500 years, the Romans reigned in the Middle East there and in many other places, finally being defeated or being split in 395 A.D., and it's interesting that toward the end of Rome, they really were like a kingdom of iron and a kingdom of clay. They're very vulnerable in their divisions. That's why they eventually split between east and west. And Rome was eventually defeated. And during that time, it says, during that last kingdom, a stone is going to hit this statue, hit all of these kingdoms, and pulverize all of them. And what do you think that's referring to? the coming of Jesus into this world. That's what almost every conservative, Bible-believing expert believes Daniel was predicting. That sure enough, when Jesus came, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, John the Baptist says, the kingdom of God is now at hand. Remember studying that, Frank? The kingdom of God is now at hand. 
The kingdom that God wanted to bring is now here among you, and it trumps all other kingdoms. And the way most people see this, there's a lot of debate, we'll get into this in the next series, is that the kingdom started when Jesus came, that it's a spiritual kingdom now reigning in and through his people, you and I, in our hearts and minds, and through his church, and that it's continued on for 2,000 years, and that eventually Jesus will come again to now physically set up his kingdom, bring us into the millennial kingdom, which we'll get into, and then usher in the end of time. So it's a kingdom that was inaugurated with Jesus' first coming, and it's going to continue on with his second physical coming. And so in all of this, folks, you don't want to miss what is happening. A prediction, a prophecy was made to Nebuchadnezzar, interpreted by Daniel in the late 600 B.C.s. We know that. And it was a prediction of what would happen politically and culturally for the next 600 years. And sure enough, the Babylonian Empire ends, the Medo-Persian Empire rises, the Greek era is ushered in, then the Romans. All of God said, all of what God said was going to happen, happened. And then the kingdom of God, this kingdom not cut by human hands, the stone, came with the coming of Jesus. God knew the future and even revealed some of what would happen in the future. And here's what you need to take away today. It's still happening now. Because what you don't want to miss is that trumping all of these kingdoms is the kingdom of God that was started 2,000 years ago. You see, with the coming of Jesus into this world, complete with his setting up of his church and reigning in the hearts and minds of his followers, the kingdom of God is now at hand. Here on a spiritual and relational level, someday to be here physically ushered in during the millennial period. And just like Daniel said, this kingdom that Jesus came to bring is more powerful and life-transforming than anything that the kingdoms of this world could ever bring. I mean, Daniel wasn't kidding when he said that this kingdom would blow away Babylon, blow away media, media Persia, blow away Greece, blow away Rome. We might even add today that it blows away China, Korea, Japan, Africa, Iran, Iraq, East and Western Europe, and yes, even America's kingdom. It's the kingdom of God that God wants every human being to be a part of and to get the primary part of their allegiance and see, as Lewis said, first things first. It's the kingdom of God built upon love and faith, love for all human beings who are made in the image of God, and faith in Jesus Christ, God's redemption-bringing Son. It's a kingdom that's grounded in truth, as we're seeing truth historically and truth prophetically, and it's a kingdom oiled by grace. Jesus would actually paint this picture. He said the kingdom is like a mustard seed. It starts off seemingly really small, mustard seed, I guess, is a really small seed, and then it grows to become one of the largest trees in the forest where all the birds can make their nests. That's the kingdom that Jesus came to bring. It's not ironic that, this, that after Jesus died and was resurrected, there was just over 100 beleaguered followers hiding out in upper rooms and all throughout Jerusalem. And then over the last two years, 2,000 years, this kingdom has now affected billions of lives in transforming ways, giving people hope of what their lives can be as they follow Christ here and certainly what their lives will be on the other side. You see, folks, this is the way prophecy works. It gives us hope. It even gives us warning. It gives us a glimpse into the future so that we might know what is coming and get on board with what God is doing. 
That's why God tells us what the future is. This is our third point here this morning. And that is that God does this so that we might trust him for all that is to come. He knows the future. He even gives us a glimpse into the future. Why? So that we might trust him. So we might say, God, we know what's going to happen. We know where this is going. And I'm on board. You know, this is fascinating. Look one last time at Daniel chapter 2, this time at verse 23. This is amazing, Daniel's response. God has just revealed to Daniel this prophetic dream of Nebuchadnezzar's. And this is what Daniel says in response. He says, to you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and have made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. So what was Daniel's response to God's revelation, to God's revealing of the future to him? Don't miss this. Thanks and praise. Or we might say full devotion. He directed his mind and his heart pointedly to God. That's what he did in response to knowing about the future. He didn't say, tell me more, or try to argue with people about what it meant. He just said, I know what's coming. I know that God is going to bring this stuff to fruition, even though I don't know all the details. And I know that that last part is about a kingdom that he's going to bring to this earth in some way, again, coming in Jesus. And he said, I'm on board with that, God. This is what I want my life to be about. In other words, folks, he rode the wave of God's kingdom. And this is what makes Daniel such a hero in the Old Testament. I mean, think of all the other waves that Daniel could have rode in his time and culture. He could have rode the wave of Babylon, complete with its sophisticated, albeit pagan, culture. He could have rode the wave of Nebuchadnezzar's political power. I mean, he was one of his advisors. He could have rode the wave of the spiritual elite around him. I'm telling you, everybody thought these guys were great, the enchanters and the sorcerers and people like that. He could have rode that wave. He could have even rode the wave of his fellow Jews who were selling out left and right. Remember that from last week, Zedekiah and all the other kings? He could have rode that wave and sold out his Jewish faith to all the things going on around him. But he didn't choose any of those waves. Daniel chose to ride the wave of God's kingdom. He gave God praise and thanks, his full devotion, and that was the wave he rode. And so I guess the question I want to ask you as we wrap up here this morning is what wave are you riding right now? Isn't that the key question? Like as you read Daniel chapter 2 and you understand a little bit about what this statue is and how it all came true through those four kingdoms and how the kingdom of God is here with the coming of Jesus, which is why we gather, by the way, as Christians to worship Christ and learn about him, the question that this chapter leads us to is what wave are you riding in your life right now? Daniel chose the wave of God's kingdom, but there were other waves, just like today. We've got tons of waves we can ride, political ones, economic ones, self-sufficient ones. Which one are you riding? And, you know, I don't usually show you things like this, but there's a video that's made its way to the Internet the last few years. It's actually gotten over 18 million views on YouTube that shows a guy surfing a huge wave off of Maui in a place called Jaws. And when you first look at this video, you simply see a guy riding a wave, but as it pans out... This, you realize that this is one massive wave. It ends up being 65 feet tall, and he just rides it. And when I saw this video, it reminded me of the kingdom of God. Because you see, when you choose to ride the wave of God's kingdom, you might not realize at first the kind of wave you're on. You might think you're just riding any other wave. The church is just, you know, one of those other things. Your Christianity kind of fits neatly into your life. 
But as time goes by, as you kind of pan out and stay the course on this wave, you realize that the wave that you're on is one huge, big, unstoppable wave. And that you might as well just hang on for dear life because you're riding the wave of God. I'm going to show you this video right now, and then we'll make some sense of it, and we'll wrap up. Look up here on the screen. Is that not cool? I'm told that he lived. I, I googled him and he, he's still alive. I don't surf, but I got to tell you, I watched that. I can announce that I got 18 million views. I watched that like five times this week. I, I, I did. Well, I mean, it was just amazing. Um, when I watched that, you can see why I thought of the kingdom of God. Because I thought, you know, there's lots of other waves that guy could have taken, right? I mean, lots of people surf. They ride 16, 20-foot waves, and they do just fine, and they, whoa, I'm already going to, they appreciate it. But, but, but he decided, and he's nuts, to ride a 65-foot wave and, and to see what kind of action that would give him. And folks, that's the way the kingdom of God is. is that we've got lots of different choices around us of what wave you can ride, but the reality is, is that God says there's one wave that eventually, as time goes by, is going to be the most massive wave. There's a future of this wave, of where it's going, and you have a choice. You're going to ride that wave, or you're going to ride all the other waves. I don't know if you noticed, but there's a time and point in that, in that video there where it seemed like the wave overwhelmed him. Did you catch that? And if you're like me, you're thinking, uh-oh, he's a goner. And then all of a sudden you see him appear out as a little speck at the bottom there. That's what riding God's wave feels like at times, isn't it? Like you're riding the wave and you think, what have I gotten into? And uh, it seems like it's going to overwhelm you, but then God comes through, and he shows you his grace, and he shows you his goodness, and he sustains you throughout all of that. That's what riding his wave is about. In 1981, I was 17 years old, and I had a choice at that time in my culture, very Daniel-like, of which wave I was going to ride. I hadn't grown up in a very Christian home. I was in my own Babylon, if you will, and... Um, I remember somebody shared with me about God's wave. They shared with me about Jesus and the fact that he died on a cross for my sins and that he came here to forgive me and lead me to God and that if I would accept him as Lord and Savior in my life that I could have an intimate relationship with him that would take me all the way to heaven. And I accepted Christ at the age of 17, as many of you know. And I began riding that wave 
I know there's times where I feel very overwhelmed and like maybe this was nuts. Uh, I also say thank you, God, because I'm in for the ride of my life. And that's the ride that God wants you to have too. Now, Scottsdale Bible Church has a, a lot of people here who have chosen to ride the wave of God's kingdom. And I hope that today's message, today's look at Daniel 2, does nothing but cement for you and maybe even challenge you even more to stay in the center of his will, to stay faithful, to stay good, to stay focused on his future, knowing that as you trust him for the future, what John Piper calls future grace, as we trust him for each moment of future grace, then he's going to show you his goodness and faithfulness. But I also know that as our church grows and as we continue to have a presence here in Scottsdale and Phoenix, that there are some of you who have come here and have not yet cemented a spiritual walk with God through Jesus Christ. And maybe today, maybe today, uh, the light has gone on in your head, enough knowledge has come into you, you've been convinced enough where you want to make a decision to ride his wave. And if that's you today, if you're ready to receive Christ into your life, like I did back in 1981, like a lot of folks have done here, I want to lead you in a prayer to do that right now. What we do this about once a quarter, where if somebody's ready to receive Christ, we give you an opportunity to do that. You say, what do I have to do? You just have to pray. You don't even have to do that. The Bible says you have to believe. You have to change in your mind uh, from thinking the way you used to be thinking to now placing your trust that you have in you right now, uh, placing your trust on Christ, God's Son, and the forgiveness that he brings you as the only one to bring you that forgiveness and receive Christ into your life as Lord and Savior. And so if you're ready to do that today, I want to lead you in a prayer to do that, and then we're going to be dismissed. So why don't we have every head bowed right now in this place, and let's go to God in prayer. Father God, if I don't miss my guess, there is a volume of people here who are very, very encouraged by what we read in Daniel 2. We've had to dig. We had to read a long chapter, but it's well worth it, God, when we realize that you are up to something in the future, that this is very linear in progression, it's going somewhere, that you even give us glimpses of it, and then you ask us to trust you. And Lord, i got to believe there's tons of people here today that want to do that, and we're very grateful that you call us to do that, and we cement, we continue in our trust and walking with you. But Lord, I also know there's some folks here today that have been seeking you in a very fresh way in their lives right now, Maybe something has jarred them awake to their need for you. Maybe it's just been a slow progression for a while in which their sights are now turned toward you. And Lord, they're ready to receive you into their lives, your son Jesus as Lord and as Savior. And so right where they sit, Lord, they recognize their need for you, that their sin has made a mess of their lives, that forgiveness is something that they need, that we all need. And they recognize that Jesus is the one who came through his death and resurrection to bring forgiveness. And right where they sit, Lord, they believe and trust in you. They receive you into their lives as Lord and Savior. And Father, as they do that, as they breathe a prayer of receiving of your Son Christ into their lives, I pray, God, that you would give them that initial assurance of salvation that only you can give. And Lord, remind them that today is their spiritual birthday, a day that they drew a line in the sand and invited you into their lives. Father, I thank you that uh, you never give up on any one of us, but that your kingdom really is like that unstoppable wave constantly, constantly hounding us with your grace and your love and your truth. So we go now with assurance of faith, knowing that you journey with us. As you've said, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. We claim that now in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day. We'll see you guys next week.